Well, uh, good morning. Uh, happy spring in Chicago. Uh, special greetings to those joining us at Crossroads and Highland Park in the O1. I want to thank Sheila for uh, sharing her story and helping us understand a little bit about what it's like to be blind. I want to note that uh, sometimes we can't understand something because we can't see it, and other times uh, we can see but we still don't understand what's going on. And we have to sort of tune in and understand context and understand big picture. That's obviously clear with life. That's also clear with, uh, with our understanding of God's unfolding plan. Uh, I had a, a curious experience this past week. I was in uh, Denver. I went there for a conference and uh, see a friend whose um, wife very unexpectedly and suddenly passed away. And uh, I got in a little bit before everything was going to start, so I, was, I went down to a coffee shop that was uh, downtown Denver, right, sitting right at the window, and I've got coffee and a book and I'm reading, but I, uh, my attention is continually drawn to the people that are walking uh, down the sidewalk. It was, uh, it was a very countercultural crowd, and I was a little surprised. I was like, you know, Wow. I know Boulder's edgy, and I knew Denver's a little edgy, but not like Grateful Dead concert edgy. I was just a little surprised at how edgy and how progressive things were. And, and, and over the course of the hour, I kept, I, I kept putting the book down and just watching people and saying, man, I really did not understand Denver. Uh, this is more Berkeley than Boulder. This is more Berkeley than Berkeley. This is just shocking. So after about an hour, I thought, you know, I've got a gorgeous day. I thought, I've got an opportunity to go for a run before things happen. So at about 4, 4.30, I, I race up to my room, change clothes, head out on a run. And as I'm running downtown Denver, heading out to one of the little trails, I realize everybody that I'm running past is smoking pot. Like, everybody is smoking pot. And I'm like, okay, well, I knew that recreational marijuana was legal uh, in Colorado, but everybody, it's 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and everybody is, I've got, I've got to rethink my whole understanding of cultural change, and oh my goodness, this is just, I didn't see this coming. So about two hours later, I am, uh, I am enlightened as to what is going on. So it, I arrived on on Thursday, the 20th of April, 4.20. So 4.20 is uh, National Weed Day. I, I, I don't think that's like from the White House, but it is just, it's National Marijuana Smoking Day. 4.20 is code. Nobody is quite sure. Some say it's police code. Some say it's Hitler's birthday. Some say it's uh, just some guys used to meet at 4.20 in the afternoon to smoke marijuana. And, and somehow, whatever, whatever it is, 4.20 is, is the day that you're supposed to smoke marijuana at 4.20. So right as I'm going on my run, like I am like perfectly timed this. Thousands of people have come into downtown Denver to gather at the state capitol, which is two blocks from where I'm at. So I'm watching all these people go by, and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. Well, that sort of put everything in context and helped me understand what's going on. We have to understand the big picture. Again, we've got to understand that with life. We've got to understand that with Scripture. So Today's story is no exception. So we've been working our way 
through the Gospel of Luke. Luke is one of the four accounts given to us in the New Testament uh, to explain the life of Jesus. In particular, one of the four accounts given to us to persuade us that we should put our faith in Jesus. We don't have to guess at that. They tell us. <laughs> Luke tells us right at the very beginning, I'm writing these things to convince you to put your faith in Jesus. He's not just a great teacher. He's not just a wonderful example. He's not just a moral reformer. He's all of those things, but he is actually God and he's Savior of the world and he's the Jewish Messiah and he's our Messiah and he's every, he's everything. And so that's the purpose of, the, of these books. So, Luke's gospel, it has we could roughly say it has uh, a third, a third, and a third. The first third is sort of uh, sets Jesus up and his early teaching in Galilee. And then there's about a third of the book, not quite, in which he is traveling from Galilee in the north down to Jerusalem, uh, timing his arrival in Jerusalem to coincide with the Jewish Passover. Because he is the Passover lamb. So for a thousand years, the Jews have had this annual celebration in which they remembered their liberation from Egyptian uh, taskmasters. They had been slaves. But they were freed when Moses comes, the ten plagues, the, the, the last plague being when the angel of death came. But if, a, but if an innocent, young, perfect male lamb was slaughtered and the blood of that lamb was painted over the doorpost then the angel of death would pass over they would recognize there's already been an atonement there's already been a sacrifice for this family and so Jesus is the perfect innocent unblemished male uh, sacrifice so that Passover event was foreshadowing Jesus for a thousand years they have recreated this annual event and, and Jesus is timing his arrival, because this is all choreographed. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, a time that you were supposed to make the bread for the Passover. There's, there's a way that, it, that you get the lamb at exactly this time you bring the lamb in and, and kill it. All these things were choreographed. Jesus is timing his arrival into Jerusalem to correspond with when the lamb should be brought in for this Passover meal. And while he is traveling from Galilee down, it, it's a long section in Luke's gospel because a lot of the teaching happens there. So a lot of his parables happen while he is traveling. Luke, Luke sort of puts him in, in that spot. So we're still in that spot, but we're getting, uh, we're getting close to the time when we enter the final week of Jesus' life, which is sort of the last third of Luke's gospel. Um, because it is the pivot point of history, right? That's the claim uh, that the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the event around which everything hinges. And so the, the, the gospel of Luke is not a biography. It doesn't give us all the details we need. It really focuses on the last week of his life. A third of the book is just to this last week. Half of the gospel of John is given over to the last week of Christ's life. So uh, that's where we're at. We're picking up now uh, with verse 35. And it says, as Jesus approached Jericho, 
which would mean that he's about 15 miles from Jerusalem, so he's getting close. The crowds probably have picked up at this point because everybody is headed into Jerusalem for the Passover. There will be hundreds of thousands of people uh, gathering there. So uh, as Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. This would be uh, an opportune time for people who are going to be begging to be out. It's sort of Christmas you know, you could expect, uh, just like, you know, it's, it, they're ringing the bell uh, for the Salvation Red Kettle uh, collection. People are on a religious pilgrimage. They're feeling generous. They're coming into Jerusalem. This is the time to be out uh, begging. And so, um, and so, says, uh, he, as Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging when he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. Uh, They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is uh, passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So we don't exactly know if that's a request for money or not. It doesn't sound like it. Um, Those who led him, he called it, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So um, we should understand that this, this man almost certainly is um, poor, in tattered clothes, you know, unkept beard. I mean, he's, he's, life is hard enough uh, in first century Palestine if you can see. If you can't see, then it's going to be really hard. So this, this is a guy who's, who's struggling, and he's going to look pretty disheveled. Uh, easy, to, easy to sort of ignore. I, I, I was with a, a friend, another friend, at this conference in Denver. Uh, not the one who lost his wife, but another friend. And he was telling me that their church just opened another campus at a uh, downtown, an urban uh, storefront. And one uh, Sunday, he, didn't, he wasn't preaching, and so he, was, he went to this new campus. And he said uh, that as the service was starting, he could see that on the other side of this sort of makeshift wall that they had set up to sort of build a, a gathering area, there were uh, about a dozen homeless people on the other side of the wall. And so he went over there, and he said, guys, yeah, come on, you can, you know, come in and join us, come into this, you know, Come into the main room. And he said, one of the guys said to me, he said, uh, no, 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 no. He goes, first of all, you have to understand, he goes, half of us are crazy, and we would freak out if we had to go into that room. He said, and all of us smell bad. He said, Is this, we, we, we like it here. He goes, we like this church. He goes, good coffee, and uh, people talk to us. They, they don't ignore us. They talk to us. We love this church, but we want to sit back here. So he goes, okay, you know, whatever. Um, so this, this was probably a pretty disheveled guy, and people are trying to keep him away from Jesus. But he says something um, interesting. Twice he refers to Jesus as the son of David. And this is, this is perhaps code for the fact that although he is physically blind, he's not spiritually blind. So to call Jesus the son of David is, is in essence to suggest that Jesus is uh, the fulfillment 
of the Davidic covenant. So one of the ways we can outline the Bible, remember the Bible is not a collection of morality lessons. It's not religious advice. It's not, it's not inspirational stories. There are inspirational stories in it. There's religious advice in it. There's all of that. But the Bible is a big sweeping book that, that is explaining context, the big picture. It's helping us understand who God is, who we are, and this big plan of God's to save us. He makes that promise early on, and we watch as that promise unfolds throughout the Bible. One of the ways that you can see the unfolding story that is told here is by tracking with the covenants that God makes with his people. So covenants are like, they're not really contracts, but they're close to contracts. Agreements. That, and there's all kinds of ways that you can pull covenants apart depending upon the parties that enter them and who's got power and who doesn't and all of that. But for our purposes, let's just note that, that there's a number of covenants of statements about how the relationship between God and man is going to work. And you see them early in the book of Genesis. We've got what we call the Edenic covenant. And then we've got a Noahic covenant. And then there's a covenant with Abraham. And there's a covenant with Moses. There's a covenant that's made with David. And uh, that covenant is spelled out in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Let me read a little bit of it for you. So, God is speaking through the prophet Nathan to give a message to David. And uh, it says, 2 Samuel chapter 7, I'm reading beginning with verse 8. God says, now then tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did uh, at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, it goes on here. Some of what is being stated in the Davidic covenant clearly is referencing Solomon, who is going to follow David as his king, as king. But some of it is going to talk about a kingdom that will go on forever. And this is referencing, foreshadowing Jesus. So the Jews would often talk about the son of David as being the Messiah, right? The one they're looking for, the one they're waiting for. David was, a, was sort of a messianic figure. They're looking for somebody like David who's going to expand the army, defeat all the enemies, push out the borders, fill the treasury. David was the high water mark for uh, the nation of Israel. So, so they have a very um, sort of immediate, physical, earthly kingdom mindset when they're talking about the son of David. But Jesus is going to fulfill that very differently. But, but to have the statement being made by this, uh, by this man that uh, Jesus is the son of David would suggest 
that he's cluing in. Okay, and again, if you go back, if we go back in Luke to Luke chapter two, we see that Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. Right? God is going to superintend a process to get Jesus born in Bethlehem. That's where David is born, and it's going to highlight that he's in the lineage of David. And then uh, in Luke chapter 3, there's a genealogy given in Luke's gospel. And it's going to highlight that you trace Jesus' ancestry back through David. Right? So Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant uh, that God makes. And so this guy just calls this out. Um, so he keeps saying, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped, ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked, What do you want me to do? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he received uh, his sight. And followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. So earlier in, this, uh, in our study of Luke, we did a little series called Greater Than. And I said, when we look at the flow of Jesus' life, we see that uh, after he's baptized by John, he goes out in the desert for 40 days, sort of toe-to-toe with with evil, and and then he begins teaching. When he begins teaching, he immediately uh, separates himself from all the other teachers by his ability to do miracles, Right. So there, there are other 30-year-old rabbis out on the circuit, but Jesus gets the big crowds. <laughs> and he gets the big crowds for a variety of reasons. He teaches with authority. He's got, he's got a presence and a bearing about him. But one of the things that makes Jesus different is he can do miracles. And, and right at that beginning, we see that Jesus does a number of miracles, Right? He demonstrates power over sickness. He demonstrates power over evil. He demonstrates power over, over nature. He demonstrates power over death. Right? And, and I just said, look, we, we have to understand these miracles that Jesus is doing here. These miracles are like big neon signs pointing at Jesus. They're, they're not pointing at the miracles per se. They're pointing at Jesus saying, he's different than everybody else. Right? He's not just a teacher. He's not just a reformer. He's not just a good example about how to live. He's God. He can calm the storm. He can multiply food. He can raise the dead. Right? He, can, he can walk on water. He can heal people. He's not like the rest of us. And so these miracles are there as markers. They're, the focus is not on the miracle. The focus is on the one doing the miracle. The miracles are pointing to Jesus. And I share this because we live in a broken world, and lots of people look at the miracles, which there's not as many miracles in the Bible as you think. There's some in the beginning. There's some around the book of Exodus. There, there's, there's a bunch around Jesus, but there's, it's not like there's a miracle on every page. Right? The, the focus of the some people look and they say, well, I want to see, right? I mean, I, I'm blind. I want to see. I, I want to be. I want to be cured. I want. I want God to miraculously make my life better, and I believe that He can. I believe that He does. So, two years ago, I was in. Right now, I was in neuro ICU, and 
And I didn't understand and didn't, didn't really fully comprehend until even six months ago that, that my doctors didn't think that I would ever go back to having a job. Right? They, they weren't telling me that. But, but I just have progressively learned that because the more somebody knows about what happened to me, the more, the more medically trained somebody is the more likely they are to say to me, and I'm talking about doctors and neurologists and others, people at the church who said, I was reading your blog, I was tracking along with what you were saying, your test scores, and I said, he's not coming back. <laughs> he's not coming back. My, my balance score, when one of the physical therapists saw that, he said, he's never going to stand, right? Because I've worked with stroke victims for the last 25 years, and I know how these things work. And if you got that score after three weeks, you're not standing. Well, I'm standing. You know, I've got a table here. It's, I'm not, it's not perfect. Coming back from India a couple months ago, we were, Cherry and I were visiting the, uh, the Hindustan Bible Institute, our ministry partner there. Coming back from India, I'm walking down, I'm on the plane, walking down the aisle. I got a cup of coffee in my hand, and all of a sudden, I go down. It happens. So thankfully, I dump the coffee on myself, fall in the lap of this couple, smack the back of the chair, because of course I'm trying to stop myself from falling in the lap of this couple that I don't know. I smack the back of the chair, and I think this poor guy was asleep, and so he jumps up, and there's all this commotion, and of course it just looks like I'm drunk, right? I mean, who falls over on a plane? And, And there's no turbulence, and so it's not perfect. Uh, Sherry, later on, when we get to London, it's, you know, four hours later, Sherry's now across from me for the first time, and she looks, she goes, what happened to your shirt? <laughs> you don't want to know. And I said, I fell, and I dumped coffee, fortunately, all over myself. And she goes, that was you? She says, I was sleeping, and I hear this commotion, and I open my eyes, and I see flight attendants running down. I go, yeah. It was me. Uh, so it's not perfect. I believe, I, I believe I'm here. I believe I can work because I got great medical care and the prayers of God's people. Like when I, again, when I go down to, well, I, I go down to RIC occasionally just to see the doctors and the nurses and the therapists and the other people that helped and to, and to, and to thank them again and to see some of the people that are there. And one of the last times I went down, I, uh, I finally reconnected with one of the women who had been like my chief physical therapist. And I'm talking with her for five minutes before she remembers who I am. And I can tell the moment the light sort of goes on for her. Because she's like, Mike, 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 oh my goodness. She said, I don't recognize you with your clothes on. And I said, if I come down with friends from the church, it would be really helpful if you don't say it that way. Uh, she goes, no, but you're like dressed like you've got a job. And I said, I do have a job. And she's like, you're working. I'm like, I'm working. And I realized at, the, at that point, you, you didn't think I was going to, obviously, you did not think I was going to go back to work. You did not think I was going to be able to drive, that I was going to be able to, to go down this path. So... So I'm very thankful for the, for the recovery that I've had. It's not perfect, right? And the fact of the matter is, 
more often than not, I think we don't see those prayers answered. And we live in a broken world, and there's pain, and there's suffering, and there's lots of questions that we, that we struggle with, like, why is this happening to this person, and why the unemployment, and why the pain, and why the blindness, and why the cancer? And, and we don't get answers to all of those questions. What we get, right, is not a promise with the miracles we see around Jesus. We don't get a promise that that's going to be the norm. What we get is, is an awareness that he's different. And when we look at this, we realize uh, he showed up, right? God is not immune to your pain. God is not, God has not stayed above it, right? He shows up right next to us so he can understand whatever you're going through. He can understand whatever hardship I'm going through. He has been there. And what we also get is, uh, is this sort of great uh, recognition that, that when his kingdom comes in its fullness, all this pain is gone. Right? I mean, we, we, so he's bringing a new kingdom. It just, we just get a glimpse of it with Jesus. And when Jesus shows up, people get well. Right? Uh, people get cured. One of the things you learn as a, as a pastor starting out is that you can't go to Jesus for advice about what to say at a funeral. Because every time Jesus goes to a funeral, the dead people come back to life. Right? I mean, so he, he brings, we, we just get a glimpse of this gracious, perfect, loving world that he will bring. But we're not there at the moment. And the miracles that we see in the Bible are not there to say, this is the promise. They're there to say, look at this guy. Okay? They're not there to say, this fix is going to be yours. Say, look at the fixer. <laughs> right? Look at the miracle maker. He's different. He's better than. He's altogether other than you and I. He is, he is God himself. And he came to live and to love and to serve and to die in our place. The purpose of the miracles around Jesus is to point to Jesus. The big news is that he's the son of David. He's the son of God. He's the savior of the world. And, and he died that we could be reconciled to God and gain eternal life. And I, I, I stress this. Um, my, when I read over the passage um, a couple weeks ago, I, I was initially momentarily inclined to go in a very different direction. Because uh, I've been thinking a lot about sight. Not physical sight, but sort of vision and sight. And, and my, my prayers in the morning are almost always including uh, the, the petitions out of the Lord's Prayer, those first three petitions. Hollow your name, right? Glorify yourself. Do something big that draws attention to yourself. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And, and it's like, okay, Lord, I want to know your will. I want to know what that, what that is. I want to know what it looks like. I want to know what I can do, how I can be a part of that. I want to see things the way you see them. I want to see people the way you see them. So, I'm, I'm praying for sight. And so I, I was, you know, when I, I see this, this blind man says, I want to see. I'm thinking, okay, I want to see. 
And, and I briefly entertained the idea of heading down that path. Trust me, pastors will preach sermons on less than that. Uh, and I thought about it, and then I thought, no, no, no. That, first of all, that's, <laughs> that's not what the passage is saying. So the first goal of Bible study, the first, the first assignment when you're reading it, I'm always trying to say, read the Bible every day. What you're after is to understand initially what the original writer intended the original reader to understand. Okay, so there's more than that that we're after in Bible study over time. But the initial desire is to understand what was the point that the writer was trying to make when he said this. And, and we've got to understand that in order to then understand what to do with that. So lots of quote-unquote Bible study is just sort of a, a feeling session. Let's get together and what does it mean to you and what does it mean to me and uh, okay, I, I feel this way about it. Okay, that's not Bible study. <laughs> it's not how I feel about it or what it means to me. What does it mean? we we got to leave ourselves out of it. What does it mean? The, word, the words mean something. So we got to figure out what those words mean in their context. And then from there, we can figure out the application. The application for you and the application for me are going to be different. But the meaning should be the same. And the meaning of this passage, right? The reason this is here in this teaching section is to remind us Jesus is God. He can do things other people can't do. And he does them because he can, because he is not just a great teacher. He's not just a moral reformer. He's not just a wonderful example. He is the son of David. He is the promised Messiah. <laughs> he is God himself. And, and he's headed into this week in which he is going to say, I, I, I was born to die. You know, I'm, I, I am here to be uh, the, the Paschal Lamb. And, and at the, the Last Supper, he changes this Passover celebration that's been going on for a thousand plus years. He changes it into Holy Communion by, in essence, saying, it's about me, <laughs> right? This idea that there has to be a sacrifice so that, so that guilty people can go free so that the angel of death passes over, right? That point is true, but this animal is not the sacrifice. This animal was a placeholder for me. I am the full and final sacrifice. And those who place their faith in me, right, are reconciled to God and forgiven. So the question is, uh, is he your God? Do you understand who Jesus is? And the irony is, of course, that what many people say Jesus is, a great teacher, a wonderful example, right, a moral reformer. He can't be if he's not God. Because his whole life and his whole teaching is predicated on the fact that he is. So he's a crazy guy, a crazy guy, or a scoundrel if he's not. Right? But it all fits together when we realize this miracle is just... One more data point to say we can trust all his claims and his teachings. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, 
We thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you for uh, all the markers, all the signs, all the indications that he is uh, who he is. He is the son of David. He is the Messiah. He is the promised one, the fulfillment of all the promises. And uh, in him we can find forgiveness and life and peace and uh, eternal life. Help us, um, help us to understand this passage even as we understand the broad context of life and the opportunities before us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to welcome uh, up those who are going to distribute the communion elements and the musicians. And as they are coming up, I will um, just restate what I state when we come to this table. When we uh, reestablish the holy communion which Jesus established on the night that he was betrayed. Changing the Passover meal into Holy Communion and drawing our attention to this. This table is open to anyone for whom Jesus is their Lord and Savior. You don't have to be a member of this local church. Um, we just, uh, we, we take this seriously. It is, a, it is a profound statement that we make that uh, we so desperately need Jesus that it's as if we have to take him into our body uh, to literally eat and to drink. And so um, I'm going to pray for us. Please take both the bread and the cup. Uh, hold on to them. I'll come back up in a minute and, and lead us. Lord God, now we would ask that you would um, meet with us, guide us, help us to see ourselves more clearly. Help us, Holy Spirit, to see uh, relationships we need to mend, any, uh, anything we need to do in order to be right and ready to come to this table. Help us... Um, Lord Jesus, to to more fully comprehend who you are and what you did and how your death changes everything. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.